This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they had heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed towards Damascus to take those who were who take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Thank you, Kristen. It's hard to be heard in a noisy room. I uh, mean that a couple of different ways. One, literally, it's hard to be heard in a noisy room. When I was a youth pastor, we did this event. We called it the MOA-NBA. So it was, first of all, the Mall of America. I was a youth pastor in Minnesota, Sox Center, Minnesota. So we took the kids down to the Mall of America. It was epic fun. They had a blast. And then we went to an NBA game. Now, since it was a youth event, I needed to do a devotional. And my plan, which I thought was so smart, was once I had the kids all sitting in the stadium together, I would then get up and I would do a devotional and tell them about Jesus. And it was a great plan. The problem is I didn't know that they do this thing, this pre-game kind of show that goes on prior to the game. And as soon as I got up to speak, that's when the, I don't know what they're called, Lady Timberwolves or whatever they are, the, the dancers were going on. 
So I got these adolescent teens in front of me and the music going, and the girls dancing down, on, and, and I'm trying to talk about Jesus, and no one's listening. In fact, at one point I said, I killed my grandmother and buried her in my backyard. Nothing, not a single person noticed. Just a loud room, and it was so hard to be heard in a loud room. It's also true metaphorically. And we live in a loud society. And here's what I mean by that. Um, let's say, for example, uh, the next episode of your favorite show comes out. Just this week it comes out. Whatever it may be. Whatever your favorite show is. And that next episode uh, comes out, and you're wondering, is it good? Is it not good? And you kind of check out their reviews online, and everybody's saying something, it seems like. And if you're a Star Wars fan, nobody likes it. But they watch it every week. I don't know what, that, what, the, what it is about that. I like them all. Uh, but anyway, so there's, there's all this noise and all these reviews and everybody's saying something about it. And to be heard now, what you got to do is ramp your voice up. And so you got to be like, either that's the most spectacular thing they've ever put to film in the history of moving pictures, or that thing was so, so bad, I thought I was going to die or kill somebody watching that one. One of the other extremes about that in the middle just don't seem to have any of that anymore. But this is where we live, and we're in this society where there's so much noise and so much clamor. I mean, we grew up, there were like, what, three channels growing up? And now there's like so many different things, and, and yet we want them to hear the gospel. We want them to learn about Jesus. And I just ask myself, why, why would they listen? Why would they hear well, here's the Apostle Paul, and he's in a loud room for sure, but more than loud, he's in a hostile room. These are the very people that want to kill him. And he has this opportunity to share with these people something. So what does he do? How does he present the gospel to this group of people? What's interesting when you read the story, do you see what he did? He just went back and said, this is my testimony. This is my life. This is what happened to me. And Jesus showed up, and Jesus drastically changed my life. And there is something powerful about a personal testimony. It's why, I don't know, every time I'm on social media and I see something like this, and I'm like, oh, look at that change. Maybe this could be the diet plan that finally does it for me. Maybe this could be the, whatever she did, it obviously worked for her, so maybe this is what we should do and it's that power of a personal testimony. You have a personal testimony. If you know Jesus Christ, you have a story. And maybe your journey, your story is just the thing that someone might need to hear to prick their heart to believe in Christ. Or do you have a testimony? Do you have a story? Well, I want to take this into three different chapters. I believe, by the way, here's the big idea of the day. I want you to know this. Uh, the power of the gospel is seen in my changed life. The power of the gospel is seen, evidenced, manifested, declared, testified, if you will, to those around me by this, by my changed life. And so this is how Paul unpacks it. We'll just check this out. Uh, he does this first. He says, before Christ, so chapter one of our story, before Christ, and we see that here in verse number three, 
Uh, Paul says this, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Sicilia, brought up in this way, educated the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are to this day. Look what it says in verse number four. Now, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear witness uh, of me. From them, I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who were there and bring them in the bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. And what Paul is doing here is Paul is just telling his story exactly as it actually happened. This is Paul's life. This is Paul's journey. Some of it is really commendable being at the feet of Gamaliel. And some of it is pretty horrible, dragging men and women away to prison. Question, what happened to the kids? He left children as orphans as he drug them to their death. So this is what he shared. What he shared was his story as it happened, actually. We're not good at this. We're not. We're not good at just laying our actual real life out for other people to see. We're good at curating our life and manipulating our life and presenting it in a certain way so others are impressed with us. You know, like, here I am doing my devotions and it's just, just me and Jesus and, and, and the Bible just happens to be open to the page. I took a bunch of notes and highlighted a bunch of stuff and, and, and the lighting just happens to be perfect and I got my coffee and it's a nice, pretty looking mug with some perfect colored coffee and but I got ripped jeans on because I'm a mess. You know, I'm a mess. You pray for me. Got my torn up jeans and all of this. And this is like what we want everyone to see. This is it. You look at that and I don't know, like both her hands are in the picture. So what's holding the camera? I mean, there's a tripod. There's lighting going on, right? I mean, this is very much not actually this person doing their devotion. This is curated and, and this is what we do. And man, we do this with, all elements of our life. We're on social media, we're on the Instagram, we just put out and we make sure we take the picture in a certain way and all that uh, so that the world can see the best version of us. This is not what Paul does. Paul says, this is my life, the good, the bad. And we have a temptation to exaggerate. And maybe some of you, like, you were saved at two. And so your pre-Christ life was, yeah, man, I had three cookies at one time. Mom said to have two, I took three. So, man, was I a sinner? You know, maybe, I don't know. Uh, And some of you uh, don't have much, but it is your journey. It's your story. And there are some of us who there are chapters of our life I just as soon forget. But it's my journey. It's what happened. So it's interesting to note what he shared. It's also interesting to note how he shared it. And let me show you what I mean by this. So he's giving his testimony, and the way in which he does it, he mentions some things specifically. Did you notice this? Go back to the text here. And notice in verse number three, he says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus. Now, what that meant is this. So Tarsus was a Roman city, and it was a large Roman city, significant, he says earlier, a significant Roman city. And Paul was born there. And what that means is Paul has dual citizenship. He's a Hebrew, but he's also a Roman. So there was a little something for the Romans to hear. That was intended for the Roman audience. But the rest of this is very much intended for the Jewish audience. Take a look at, and not only Jewish, but those who were zealous 
for the law. Remember how the text before said these were zealous for the law? Well, look at what he says. First of all, he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. That's like um, the top Jewish scholar, the scholar of the law of the day. This was number one, man. Gamaliel was it. And only the best of the best, the most elite of the Jewish boys got to learn at the feet of Gamaliel. It'd be kind of like someone saying, hey, I learned to play basketball at the feet of Michael Jordan. Or I learned about Star Wars at the feet of George Lucas. Two Star Wars references in 10 minutes. Come on now. I'm, 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 thank you, thank you, thank you. There's one sad person clapping. Um, he mentions the fact that he, um, born in Tarsus, a Jew, at the feet of Gamaliel, then he talks about how he persecuted these people. And again, it's not very pretty, but he had a zeal for the law. That was the point. I'm zealous for this thing. You think you're zealous trying to kill me? I've killed lots of people. I was there when Stephen was stoned. His blood is on my hands, so to speak. I was there all in all these things. In fact, he says the same thing to the Jews in Philippi, where he says this, though I myself may have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So, why is he sharing these things, specifically these things? He didn't always do that. When he was in front of the philosophers on Mars Hill, he didn't talk about his Jewishness. But here he is. Why? Because he's around Jews who are zealous for the law. And, and what he's doing is he's packaging the absolute unvarnished truth of his life, this is what it was, but he's packaging in such a way because he has an audience around him. We call that contextualization. Is that okay to do? Is it okay to contextualize the teaching of God's word to people? I mean, isn't that kind of like what the secret churches are doing? I think there's some pushback against this, and I've said often from the pulpit that we're not a seeker church here. What I mean by that is that our number one question about how we do church is not what do our neighbors want from us. That's not our number one question uh, because I don't believe the church exists to educate the unsaved. The church exists here, and, and what we do on Sunday morning is to equip believers for the work of the ministry. Now, we send you out to reach the unsaved, Track with me on that. So we send you forth to tell the gospel. But what I do on a Sunday morning is for believers. And if, if it's not, if we're asking, what does our culture want from a church? And what we're going to do is we're going to dumb down the gospel. We're going to not talk about hard things that the Bible talks about. We're going to make it a lot more palatable for everybody around us. I just don't see that being biblical. We're told to preach the unchanged truths of the word of God. But we're doing that in a culture that's constantly changing. So here's a, a saying I heard, I think it's really good. We preach the truths of God's word that never change to a world and culture that is constantly changing. And so we do some things here to kind of try to reach the current culture. Uh, for example, um, you might notice that the songs we sing here are contemporary worship songs. 
And we do that because this is the musical language of the day. This is where people are. And so we're, we're packaging that so that anybody could come in and hear these songs and resonate in their heart. Now, if we were in Africa, the songs would sound different. If we were in Mexico, the songs would sound different. If we were in the deep south, we'd probably have more country. And you would need another pastor because I wouldn't just do that. But all that to say, there's just like there's some contextualization that goes on. Uh, you might notice I'm wearing jeans in the pulpit. And uh, uh, growing up, man, uh, I mean, listen, for most of my pastoral ministry, or not most now, but, but for the first half of it at least, I was always in a suit and tie. I mean, suit, tie, buttoned up, looking snazzy, all that, because that was the expected culture of the church I was in. But, but you know, we're, we're, we're okay to be laid back now, and that's, that wasn't what it was growing up. We have stage lighting, but, you know, we don't do the smoke and all of that, but we do do some lighting here to try to draw. I mean, all of that, is that okay? Is it okay to do that? Yeah, it's okay to contextualize. Paul contextualized to the culture he was in in order to reach the culture that he was in. But again, the principle stands strong. We preach the truths of God's word that never change to a world and culture that is constantly changing. So how does that apply to you and your personal testimony? Well, uh, consider your audience. Who are you talking to? If I was going to share my gospel story with a group of teenagers, I'd probably talk a little bit about my rebellious teenage years. And yes, I had rebellious teenage years. Uh, I, I learned uh, when I was uh, late junior high, so around seventh, eighth grade, that I could play the drums. And so I got uh, in, a, in a band, a death metal band. So slash grunge, slash death metal, back in the 90s, if you can imagine the massively baggy pants, the flannel shirt open, hat on backwards. I mean, that was the look. And, uh, but that kind of led down a really bad pathway with experimentation with drugs, not healthy relationships with, with girls, uh, just a whole bunch of garbage that was a part of that. And, and some of the stuff we were getting into was getting darker and darker and darker and darker and and I was on my road, I thought, to becoming the next awesome drummer in a rock band until God got a hold of my heart and changed all of that. And what I would tell kids, and I've said it a hundred times to teens, you know, um, the enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life, they may have it more abundantly. And had God allowed me to have the life that I thought I wanted, what a horrible thing that would have been. But God showed up and changed my direction and the life I have now. I mean, I couldn't imagine a better life. I'll say to the kids, uh, back then I would say, if I could have a DVD of your life, and now kids would say, what's a DVD? But if I had a streaming service, the Netflix of your life, and uh, episode one was, hey, you live your life the way you want to live your life. And then episode two was, you live your life the way God wants you to live your life. There'd be no question as to which one would be a better life for you because Jesus came to give us life and to give it more abundantly. And I was thinking about this as I was driving in this morning. Man, I just love my life. I love my job. God has blessed me so much. And uh, that is, that's, that's, but if I'm in front of teens, I'm telling my rebellious teen stories. If I'm in front of uh, military guys, because I was in the military, I'm going to talk about the military and talk about those things. And all the same truth, not changing or exaggerating the truth, but considering the people that I'm in front of. So here's a couple questions for you. Who were you before you came to know Jesus? I know, I know, you were three, but keep with me if you would. What is your God story? When was the last time you shared that story with someone else? 
Is this something you do commonly? Will you use this tool of your personal testimony to share Jesus? Why or why not? Chapter 1 that Paul shared with the people is, this is me before Christ. Then we have this, uh, then God. So chapter 2, then God. And I love Paul's story. We'll grab a glimpse of it here in verse number 6. So Acts 22, verse 6. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground uh, and, and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And we know this awesome story. It's epic, it's dramatic, it's incredible that Jesus is showing up and revealing himself to Paul, and Paul is is on his face, struck blind by Jesus. God showed up, and there are several things involved that you need to see this morning. Here's number one. It involved a miraculous revelation. It involved a miraculous revelation. For Paul, it was both miraculous and it was dramatic, But here's the deal. Listen now. Paul's biggest problem was he had Jesus wrong. Prior to his conversion, he had Jesus wrong. To Paul, Jesus was a rebel. To Paul, Jesus was this dude who was leading people away from the law and needed to be stopped, and everyone who followed him needed to be stopped to the point of, I'll kill them to stop it. And the foundation of the problem was Paul had Jesus wrong. So he needed a miraculous revelation as to who Jesus really is. Something that we need is this. This is the most important question. What are you going to do with Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? And listen, not just any version of Jesus will do. It's got to be the Jesus of the Bible. Okay, Pastor, come on, how about Muslims? I mean, Muslims are devout. They are dedicated to a, a, a religion. They pray. They fast. They're, they're very religiously uh, um, committed uh, to, to their faith. And you're going to tell me that Muslims don't go to heaven? Well, the key question is, what are you going to do with Jesus? Oh, but... They believe he was a good man. They believe he was an effective teacher. He had a lot of influence, but not God. Not the son of God. Not someone who died to pay for the sins of the world. That's not true. By the way, did you know you can't have Jesus being a good man, but not God? You can't have that. Because Jesus claimed to be God. <laughs> Listen, if I claim to be God, you got to lock me up, right? Because I'm not God. And if Jesus claimed to be God and wasn't God, that means he was either a lunatic or he was a liar. It's not a good man. But they, they deny that. And it's a vital question. How about uh, Mormonism? Uh, again, 
Now, I, I, grew up, I, I grew up in Washington State, so we were not far from Utah, and it matters. Okay, it really does, because there's a whole lot more uh, Mormons where I grew up, and, uh, and they, have, they have a version of Jesus. They do. They talk about Jesus, and they, and they worship Jesus. The problem is they've redefined who Jesus is, and he wasn't the savior of the world. He was actually a, a brother of Satan, not the God of every God who came and lived a sinless life and died a criminal's death and then rose again for the payment of our sins. It's a different gospel. And so if, that's, if you don't worship the one and only Jesus, the one, only one Jesus will do. And so Jesus found in the gospel, the God who became man, who took on our sins and rose again victorious over that. So then I got to look at you this morning because I'm not sure how many Muslims or Mormons I have, but what I have in front of me is a bunch of Christians who grew up in the evangelical church. And chances are, in fact, let me just do this. How many of you have gone to church since a childhood? Just raise your hand. How many of you have been to church? Okay, look at that. Almost everybody in the room been to church since childhood. Awesome. So when I come to you and I say to you, when did you come to know Jesus? This is an answer that I almost always get. Well, I've always known Jesus. And, and I get what that means. What that means is you grew up in a home where you talked about Jesus, when you prayed to Jesus, and, and, and all along the way you've thought well of Jesus, you're fond of Jesus, you think he's great, and, and, and you can even come to church, you can do all the church evangelical things, but have you actually wrestled with that same question, who is Jesus to you? Because here's the reality, you're not born knowing Jesus. The Bible says this really clearly in Romans 3.10, for it is written, none is righteous, church, say it with me, no, not one. Nobody is righteous. You're not born a believer. You're not born righteous. In fact, God's word says this a little bit later on in Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's all, 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 all. So you weren't born a believer. And everybody has to wrestle with, what am I going to do with Jesus personally? What am I going to do? There needs to be at some point a miraculous revelation. Now, I'm not saying that you got to hear the voice of God. I'm not saying you got to see a vision. You can read the word and the Holy Spirit can miraculously ignite your heart to believe it. You can hear the gospel presented and the Holy Spirit miraculously enlighten you to believe it. It doesn't have to be dramatic. In fact, I love the testimony of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis um, was a student at Oxford. He had a lot of, he was an atheist attending and he would be very proud about that. And he got into a lot of conversations with some of his friends that were also there, J.R.R. Tolkien being one of them. And they talked about the gospel and talked about God and talked about it and debated it for hours in the evening. And then there's a story that he tells of when he and his brother Warren were going to go to the zoo. And they were in a motorcycle and a sidecar. And here's what he said. He got in the sidecar and he says this, when I set out for the zoo, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. <laughs> and that was his testimony. But notice there had to be that revelation, that, that acknowledgement of who is Jesus to you. So who is Jesus to you? 
It also involved this. Write this down. It involved significant humiliation. Significant humiliation. Paul was arrogant. I mean, massively. You have to be to do what he did. He showed up in front of people and he said, what you're doing is wrong and what I'm doing is right and you're so wrong that I'm taking you to prison for it. You're so wrong that you might die and I'm leaving your kids as orphans because I'm so right and you're so wrong. That's arrogance. And God humbled him. Brought him to his face, took away his sight. He had to be led by hand into Damascus. And then God sends a Jew who has been converted to Christianity, the very people he was dragging to prison, he sends Ananias, who is one of them, over to reach Paul and to share Jesus with Paul. And it was significant humiliation. And we need humbled. Our default is to try to work our way to heaven. It is. Try to be good enough. In fact, listen, now you can put the religions of the world in two categories, one being we earn it, and then the only right one, Jesus has earned it for me. But everybody else is in the we earned it camp. That you've done something, some righteousness that you've attained to, to get yourself to heaven. Well, God's word is clear about this. Here's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved, church, through faith. And that's not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works. No one can boast. Titus 3, 5 is clear. He saved us, not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to your, his own mercy. Not our works. It's not our works. And there's, listen, there's something in us even now that, that wants it to be us. And this is why we get so defensive when we're confronted by our sin. And, and, and this, is, this is that tendency to try. This is why we put our hope in the one-day version of us, because one day I'm going to get it. One day I'm going to be awesome. One day I'm going to nail it. Because we all want to. But yet Jesus says this in a parable that he shared. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went down into the, up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. He was British, by the way. Extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. By the way, what's your uh, Pharisee speech? Ask your spouse. They know it. They've heard you say it a lot. Verse number 13, but the tax collector standing afar off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is salvation, church. This is salvation. You have to listen now. There has to be a point in time in your life when you feel the weight of your sin. And because of the weight of your sin, that you cry out in humiliation to God to save you. But I've always known Jesus. Okay, when did that happen? When did you feel the crushing weight of your own sin? 
because that will push you to this. It involves faith in Jesus. When did Paul get saved? Like in the story, what was the moment that Paul passed from death into life? When did he believe? What, when did that happen? And it's interesting when you read it, because I think it's not until the very end. Because, because what happens for it, of course, the light hits, he's humbled, um, uh, the other people with them, they see the light, but they don't hear, and they probably think Paul's nuts, and all these things kind of happen in, in, in all of that. And then Ananias shows up, and you see this in verse number 16. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Paul, you gotta, you gotta, gotta quit persecuting him, and you gotta call on his name to save you. The Jesus Paul spoke against was the Jesus he needed. The Jesus for whom he was persecuting the church was the one he had to call on to save him. But there had to be a time when Paul called on the name of Jesus. By the way, it was the calling on the name and not the baptism that washed away his sins. Otherwise, those other verses we just read about works wouldn't be true. It was faith in Jesus Christ that Paul needed. Now, the baptism was the evidence of the washing of the sin, and especially in New Testament times, it was so close to their salvation that they're often put together, but definitely it's the faith and faith alone that saves. In fact, Paul said this in Romans 1, 16 through 17, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. It is written, the righteous shall live by church faith. It is the faith that saves. So I got to ask you the question. When did you believe? I've always believed. No, you didn't. This is one of my biggest concerns for the church and for Redemption Bible Church specifically with a bunch of us who grew up in all of this, it's easy to do the things we do because they're the things that we do. But when did you believe? When did you call on the name of Jesus? Church, you need each of these elements in your testimony. When was your miraculous revelation about Jesus? When did you realize who he was? When was that, be merciful to me, a sinner? When did that happen for you? And when did you call in his name? And if you're in question on that, you're in the right place today because we're going to help you. Let's look at this last chapter now, chapter three of the story, before God and before Christ and then God and, and now. Let me show you where I'm getting this. Look at verse number 17. <laughs> So Paul shares a little bit more about what happened to him. And he said this, when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. This is, by the way, years after his actual salvation. Um, he says, praying, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And then Paul argues with God. But look at what he says in his argument, verse 19. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. But I'm not that guy anymore. That's who I was. And now I'm preaching your name. 
I mean, can't they see the difference? That's where I was then, but this is who I am now, and I'm dramatically changed. There's power in a personal testimony. Now, unfortunately, these Jews would not be persuaded, but it's not because of the testimony. In fact, I heard this from one of my professors in college. I'll never forget it. It's stuck with me ever since. And uh, Dr. Culver said this, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. So true that you can convince someone, but if they don't want to believe, they're not going to believe. I don't care about the evidence you lay down. I don't care about whatever. If you convince them against their will, they're of the same opinion still. The other benefit about this is it rhymes. So it makes a good rap. No, I'm not not even going to try Point being is that that's absolutely true. So let me say this, just real quick as a like, okay, so what do we do with that? Here's what we do with that. Um, We try to change the will before we try to change the mind, and we change the will through acts of love. I want to love them. I want to care for them. I want to reach out and love. And through all of that, I want to see if we can win them over their heart before I try to win their mind. Win the heart before you try to win the mind. But Paul is saying, I'm different, I'm different, I'm different. Now, the hard thing about today and the crowd I have in front of me is by admission, most of us grew up in the church. So chances are you were saved pretty early in life. You did something pretty early in life. And that's awesome, and I, and I love that. So you don't really have a massive, okay, Before I was saved, what kind of a horrible sinner was I? (laughs) You don't have a testimony like that. And I'm saying your story is your story. Your story is God's story. But here's the deal. It's not like you only changed from before you were saved till after you were saved. There's a whole lot of changing left to do in life. In fact, all the things I was talking about before, my rebellious teen years, all of that, I was a believer. I was 12 years old, and I got... When I accepted Christ, this was about age 14 to 15 when I got wrapped into all of this stuff. And God had to show up and God had to show me and God had to change me. And he did. And I'll never forget the day when I called my friend Mike, who was a lead guitar player in the band. And I said, Mike, I have got to leave this band. And I'm so sorry. And he was so hurt and so disappointed because we were going to be the next Nirvana, baby. We were on our way. Eighth graders and all, man, we were going to do it. We were going to rock it out. By the way, Nirvana is a group out in Washington. They used to play grunge music, just so you know that. Don't listen to it. None of us righteous, but anyway, it's all out there. By the way, I want to tell you the story of Mike because it's an awesome story. So, so I left the band. Uh, Mike continued on that same road, and Mike ended up on some really, really bad things. Ended up uh, a drug addict addicted to crystal meth. And yeah, I was, I was, I mean, when I heard that, I was massively heartbroken and all that. Uh, but um, what's awesome, Christ found Mike. And Mike heard and believed the gospel. And Mike's life now is so different. <laughs> 
he married one of the girls from my youth group, which is weird now for me, like two worlds colliding, but they're married, and, and he's uh, an awesome husband. He loves her well. He plays guitar in their church worship band. I get goosebumps just thinking about it. It's just awesome to see what God did in his life, and that's the kind of thing that God does, dramatically changes us. So what's new about you? How is the gospel changing you? Are you growing? Are you different than you used to be? If you're not seeing a whole lot of changing and growth as you look back over your life, I think it's a legitimate thing to say, what have you really done with Jesus? I don't know what happened when you were four. I don't, I don't know what happened in your testimony and what you did. And there could be a lot of reasons, because your mom wanted you to, because your dad wanted you to, because all the other kids are going forward. I went forward too. And I don't know what it is with you. But you better be sure. In fact, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get a little old-fashioned here, okay? A little old school. And I want everyone to close their eyes and bow their heads this morning. I'm not going to call anyone forward this morning, but I want to give you an opportunity to respond to the gospel. So what do I need to know? Here's what you need to know. You're a sinner. And because of your sin, you deserve hell. You can't save yourself. You can't be good enough. You can't attend church enough. You can't do enough good works. But God in his love sent Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus came, he lived the perfect life, he never sinned, but on the cross, he took on the sin of the world, including your sin. And so instead of you being punished for your sin, Jesus was punished in your place. And then he rose again. And what you need to do is call on his name. Later in Romans, Paul will say, for anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He knew it because he did it. And you need to call on his name. To do that, you could say a prayer like this. Now, it's not the words that save you, it's the faith that saves you, but you need to call. And here's what you could say to call upon the Lord. You could say, and if you've never done this or your salvation is in doubt this morning, just pray along with me and say this, dear God, I know I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. I know I deserve hell. But I believe that Jesus died for me and I believe he rose again. And I want to ask you now to save me. I want to call on the name of Jesus. And if you would say something like that to God and you mean it from your heart, you understand, man, you have a testimony. You have a testimony. So, Father God, we would pray that if there is anyone in this room who's 
in doubt, that they would just pray a prayer like that this morning, and they would settle it with God right now, with you, Father, that they're a sinner, but they believe that Jesus died for them, and that's their hope. They're going to rely upon the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes to it in your name. Amen. Now for the rest of us, for the rest of us, go tell your story. You have a journey. You have something that God has brought you through. And that testimony could be the thing that would awaken someone's heart to believe in Christ. So don't put that under a bushel. No. I'm going to write a song. But proclaim that to the world. Do that for his glory. Thank you for coming. You are loved. It is two minutes till 12. But I, listen, no, 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 no. I preached longer than Adam did last week, just right now. I was longer. Quit giving him a hard time is what I'm trying to say, all right? You are loved.